Who Feeds Us? Episode 6, Looking Back and Moving Forward. This series is a chorus of voices from people across the British Isles, people on the land and the seas, on allotments and city roofs, the stories of farmers, growers, community leaders, healers, chefs, beekeepers, fishers, and others. This is Who Feeds Us. So here we are again. Across the UK, we're all living under some kind of lockdown. Last time around, we were on the upswing of the year. The days were getting longer and warmer, and most of us expected the restrictions to last maybe a few weeks. This time, we're heading into winter, and while the supermarket shelves are no longer empty, I think it's fair to say the future still feels pretty uncertain and daunting. But over the last five episodes, we've heard a chorus of voices sharing stories of resilience, of hope, of creativity and compassion. These stories are proof that the alternatives to industrial food already exist. And if we believe in them, engage with them and invest in them, they can thrive and become the norm. In this final episode, we'll revisit some of the people we've heard from throughout the series. We'll tease out some of the common threads that bind these apparently disparate voices together. Threads such as reverence, gratitude, sovereignty, dignity, and abundance. We'll hear more about what these people have learnt over the course of this year, their visions for resilient, localised food economies, and how they see the future of who feeds us. One of the recurring themes in the stories we've heard is the idea that a healthy, equitable and sustainable food system must have respect and reverence at its core. Reverence for the land, for animals, for people and for the food on our plates. For Salma and Khalil Atan, beekeepers at the East London Mosque, this reverence is central to their business and their faith. Within the Quran, there's actually a chapter which is called the bee. It talks about um, bees and the benefit that bees can provide. And it talks about honey. It mentions about how honey bees are a source of inspiration. So they're something that you can derive lessons from. But it also talks about how within the honey that the bees produce in their bellies, you get some benefit is derived from that. You know, I I have a huge amount of respect for the bees. If if I don't take care of the needs of the bees first, I won't be taking any honey off them. You know, my colonies, they have to be thriving. They have to be doing really well before I even think about taking any of the extra honey off them. And we always sort of have, have the respect towards the bees. And I think you have to have that um, understanding towards your livestock. If you don't have that... Um, sort of respect towards your livestock and you don't have that care and compassion towards the honeybees then I, I think there's no point in you being a honey uh, a beekeeper to be honest I think you have to you have to have that understanding of you know the the restrictions that honeybees have and that there may be times when our colonies might not produce honey and that's fine you know there's you know some years will be good some years will be not so good and you, you just have to have that understanding of um what your honeybees are capable of doing and I think people are sort of have this greater respect when they understand that there's a lot more behind that jar of honey than 
you know first meets the eye i think there's a there is a there is a greater respect towards um locally produced food we bring the honey back ourselves we'll filter we'll um, extract it ourselves we'll jar it ourselves so you know from the from the hive to the jar uh, we're doing the whole process ourselves and you know people know that that's what we're doing and they have some sort of respect for the fact that they know us they know that we are doing this ourselves from from you know the bee to the jar and you know we can talk to them about the whole process as well you know people will come to us and they'll ask us certain questions about how we produce the honey what do we do 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 you feed your honey bees um do you mix sugar into the honey you know obviously that doesn't happen with local beekeepers you know is it actually you who are the beekeepers all of these kind of questions so i think people are becoming more and more um maybe they've had more time to research into these things and they want quality now as well so if they're going to uh, purchase something local with local normally you get quality as well so people um you know want to know these kind of things as well that is that is this what you're actually doing so respect is a crucial component of Salman Khalil's localized model of honey production respect for the bees the beekeepers the customers and the wider community they're all part of as we heard, farmer and halal slaughterman Mohsen Hassanin shares this focus. His practice is focused on reverence for life, and that includes honouring the life of animals in death. So when I approach that animal, especially on farm, on farm I've many times tears have come to my eyes, but I've also understood how important it is what I'm doing. This animal has to be killed in the right way, and I'm the right man for the job. What you do is you elevate that animal and you're then elevating yourself and your spirit to deal with that harsh reality of taking life. Salma, Khalil and Mossen are part of a growing movement of producers and eaters who are reclaiming reverence and respect as key pillars of a just and sustainable food system. Being respectful or reverent is also about being curious and seeking a better understanding of the people, the land and the systems that bring our food to us. Here are Chef Sky Gingell and biodynamic farmer Jane Scotter. People used to sit down to a meal and they, they would say grace and have gratitude for the food on their table. Like it was a really important big thing and they understood that it was a valuable commodity and I think um, people would spend a lot more money on food, certainly right up until the 1950s when food changed beyond all recognition and... Um, you know, we had fast food and we, we could develop food with, you know, fertilizers and sprays and, you know, that we could we could feed people on mass cheaply, which was incredible. And but but also it kind of really devalued food. And um, and so we don't really have any gratitude around it anymore. And we have the only question I believe we all need to ask ourselves is where does my food come from and how is it grown? And that's the one question that we don't really ask. So as consumers, or eaters, what does it look like for us to have reverence and respect for the food on our plates, and for the people, the plants, the animals and the soil that have brought that food to us? Could expressing gratitude, giving thanks, in whatever way feels right to each of us, could that be a simple first step in building a healthier, more resilient relationship with those who feed us? Experiencing that sense of gratitude requires and encourages an appreciation of the complexity of the natural systems that food producers work with 
and the huge amount of thought and effort that's gone into every bite of food. Jane and Skye's newest collaboration is a restaurant and biodynamic farm in the grounds of Heckfield Place Hotel in Hampshire. One of their colleagues at the hotel had a life-changing experience during lockdown that speaks to this idea. Um, a fellow called Peter, who's the food beverage manager, he was a chef as well, um, by trade. And um, because there was no head gardener at the time when the pandemic um, came around or lockdown started, he had to go down and manage everything um, and had never really done any gardening before in his life. And uh, I think he, he fell in love with it. And um, he, he, he loves Heckfield. He's very... Uh, he's very um, devoted to the place and um, he learnt really quickly and uh, it just really, you know, all the things, it's a bit like, um, you know, all that you hear yourself telling your children and then suddenly it's coming back at you and you knew that that we had sort of uh, broken through this barrier to the management really of, of the understanding of what it is down there to... Uh, what it takes to grow all this stuff. He walks around with a knife yeah. attached to his kind of like um, belt. He's the like holster. he's yeah a holster. Yeah, he's <laughs> like I mean, he's amazing, and it's also really understanding. You know, like I think it gets back to what I said at the beginning, which was that you know it was really the biggest learning curve was for to me was to really understand the value of growing and food, and that we. Mm. We, we all have gotten very used to food being incredibly cheap and available whenever we want it. And actually yep. to grow food is, is, you know, even just to grow the simplest thing is, you know, to get that bunch of, like to get those tomatoes at this time of year. I mean, all the work that's gone into it six, eight, nine months before, you know, like whether it's prepping the soil or like plant yeah. propagating the seed, growing it, weeding, watering it, you know. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's like, it, I think he's just developed this incredibly deep um, understanding of the fickleness, apart yeah. from anything of nature, and then the human toil that goes into, and also the abundance, you know, Jane touched on that before. It's like, in, in a really small space, if it's really biodiverse and the soil is incredibly healthy and nutrient dense, I mean, it literally pops up a bit like Jack and the Beans, you know, that, that yeah. you can grow so much in such a little space. And I think yes. he, he's just like, he's made the connection, you know, between with the earth, I think, and the yeah. soil, you know, and I, I think a lot of chefs have a huge disconnect one thing I do think is like, um, and the thing that I'm most proud of, like in my work, I think is I really do definitely put my money where my mouth is, you know, like you hear a lot of people about talking about hyper um, seasonal, you know, like you, you don't, you wouldn't meet a chef that didn't say, if you said, how do you cook? And they'd go, oh, uh, seasonally and sustainably. But, you know, they have no idea if that involves a mango on their dish. It, it's, it, there's a lot of greenwashing and virtue signaling out there. And I really think what we do is the real deal. And I, I feel incredibly yeah. proud of that. Yeah. And, um, and I, think that, I think the thing that was so lovely for us is, you know, we, we love Peter and he's like an amazing, we're like the three-legged stool together, you know. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> and, uh, but he's really made that huge connection with just what it takes to grow and which will yes and which has taken the whole uh farm forward in so many yeah, ways yeah to um, a whole different level yeah so uh, we're very happy about that <laughs>
we definitely need many more small organic biodynamic farms and yeah. we need we need biodiversity and we absolutely need it it's essential to you know to our health to the health you know i mean health our health the and the health of the planet is one yeah. and the same it's not separated and no. it's really really i feel all the time what we're doing whether we make any difference or not our work is really important we're making a contribution that's for sure but, yeah you know, we're living in the making it successful, a solution yeah, yeah. yes another theme that came up again and again is the resilience that comes from working on a small scale or maybe more accurately, a human scale. A scale at which it's possible to build genuine, personal relationships with colleagues, suppliers, customers and communities. Sky and Jane, along with Scotland-based farmer and restaurateur Angus Buchanan-Smith, have found that building localised, human-scale infrastructures and cultivating close relationships between their farms and restaurants has allowed them to quickly and nimbly respond to the crisis. When it comes to imagining a truly resilient food system, this responsiveness is key. After all, farming is inherently unpredictable. Dean at Ballylisk Dairies told us that farming is a gamble every day. Every year is different. So the ways in which we produce our food need to be flexible enough to respond to everything the world throws at us. And that includes economic instability, an unpredictable climate, and public health crises like the one we're living through right now. But farmers and other food producers can't be responsive like this without some level of stability and security. One approach is for us, the eaters, to share the risks with the farmer by paying for a regular supply of produce in advance through a subscription model. Here's Angus Buchanan-Smith. So we, we started farming pigs here uh, about five years ago. And initially, actually, the, fir- the first pig was bought for, for a present for my, for my dad uh, for his birthday. Um, we always knew he, he always loved pigs and we thought it would be quite a nice wee present. Um, um, and, it, and it slowly grew. And we, we, we actually, at the beginning, we primarily focused on Berkshires. Uh, and we wanted to farm in a way that was, you know, as natural as possible. So they're outside in fields for as much of the year as we possibly can keep them outside. Um, and the beauty of a Berkshire is that they, as long as they're given good grass, they will actually graze. And pigs get a bad rep for digging up the ground. But if, if you're able to actually, you know, rotate them across good fields, uh, they prefer to eat the sweeter grass than dig for the roots. So we, so we did this and we slowly, we slowly upscaled it. And when we initially, we started feeding the, uh, putting the pigs through the restaurants. Um, but when we got a few more, we thought, actually, maybe there's a really nice market to be able to sell some of this pork. As we began to have a bit of a surplus, we thought, why not set up a way for customers to buy it directly from, from us? Uh, so we created the Pig Club, and this is basically a subscription model, and it, and it allows our customers to, to sign up for ideally for a year. And there's two options, either whole member or half member. And the idea is after 12 months of being part of the uh, part of the, the the pig club you've received every single cut to make up either half a pig or whole pig There's so many of the unusual cuts they, that they just don't get to the conventional supermarkets and people are therefore unaware of how to you know how to cook them or how to utilize them when we get them so we also make, make an effort to include you know little recipe cards to allow our customers to to basically access some of the more 
yeah, some of these more unique cuts and, and not be too afraid of them and know how to prepare, you know, a ham hock or how, what best way to cook a jowl or whatever. It's kind of just gone from gone from strength to strength, and it's now, particularly for this last year, has has been a, a vital lifeline that has kept the entire operation afloat. This was something that we ran alongside the restaurants, but since the restaurant closed throughout lockdown, it's been a really important lifeline for us. Um, that along with the Veg Club, similar to Pig Club in many respects, it's also a subscription model. Basically, and we, we've got different options. We've got a weekly members. Uh, fortnightly members and monthly members. Basically, all all the veg is harvested from the farm is distributed and it was put out into these boxes and then distributed throughout throughout Edinburgh. It's a really good way to give us security because obviously, um, although we also sell wholesale and and obviously you know food goes to the restaurants, there are always there are always gluts of certain items throughout the year and it's it's re- and, and something that you as a as a small scale market gardener you can never predict what's going to be really good or what or you suddenly get a sunny spell and all your all your cajettes come on at once and it's just a really nice way to give us a little bit more security and reduce our waste, uh, but also you know giving giving our giving our veg customers the pick of the crop. So, um, yeah, they basically get, yeah, get some really, you know, exciting fresh produce picked the day before it gets to them, which is, you can't really beat that. And so what we've managed to do with the veg club and the pig club is, is basically is create the most direct route to market um, and selling, yeah, selling directly to our customers. And if you have these subscribe members on board, you know that consistently every month you can predict your sales. And that's been, from a from being able to reduce our risks that's been hugely beneficial and allowed us to you know lay out a growing plan for the year based on x amount of of um of of members of the club which has been yeah just a a, re- a really helpful way to 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 reduce waste and reduce risks through the pig club and the veg club angus has used a subscription model to build resilience into his business it allows him to plan more effectively to reduce waste and to reduce risk. It also gives him the financial security and the peace of mind to be able to focus on creating a holistic system in which all the elements, such as the vegetables and the pigs, support each other. In a similar way, bakers Rosie Benson and Rosie Gray offer bread subscriptions, and these provide enough security to allow them to experiment and to be responsive to the changing situation, for example, by baking extra loaves for food banks. We also heard from Dee Woods of Granville Community Kitchen, based in the London neighbourhood of South Kilburn. Dee has built another form of subscription service, a community-supported agriculture scheme, which includes an option known as solidarity shares. Those who can afford to pay a bit extra subsidise other people's subscriptions, allowing them to access high-quality, locally-grown vegetables for the price of a healthy start voucher. The industrialised food system, it's either that cheap food fills people up, is killing us. It's killing us, it's killing our planet, it's killing the environment, it's making us sick. That can't continue, it just, it just isn't acceptable that, that we are oppressing people so that we can have cheap food. The question of how we can ensure that everyone has access to nutritious food is an extremely challenging and emotive one. It's a question that's threaded throughout the stories we've shared. Time and again, we've heard from people who acknowledge the economic barriers that currently exist, but their solution is not to drive prices even lower, 
or to find ways to produce more cheap food. They're looking for other solutions. For Birmingham-based chef and allotmenteer Linda McFarlane, founder of Vegan Vibes, it's about putting vegetables at the centre of the meal in order to make delicious, nourishing food available at a low cost. For another Birmingham resident, Astrid Guillebeau, who lives in the Shard End neighbourhood, it's about bringing her community together to see what they can grow for themselves. For baker Rosie Benson, it's about enabling people to access her bread through food banks by baking a number of loaves on a volunteer basis. Each of these examples is an expression of and a step towards food sovereignty. They show how we can start to claim agency over where our food comes from, how it's produced, how people can access it, and ultimately over what our entire food and farming system looks like. Here's Dee Woods with her thoughts on the goal of food sovereignty. It is extremely important that communities have control over what they eat. And I think that's that's what we've lost with a modern, industrialised and globalised food system. We do not have that control anymore. Developing our own community farm, we will regain that. And people will regain some agency in terms of being able to, to choose. Another element of food sovereignty is dignity. Throughout the series, we've heard about the importance of dignity at every level of the food system, from the soil to the plants, the animals, farm workers, farmers, processors, and eaters. Ursula Myrie told us about her initiative, Adira, a Sheffield-based survivor-led service that supports black people with mental health issues. And in particular, she told us about Adira's food pharmacy project, which provided food to people in the local area during the first lockdown. As Ursula pointed out, ensuring that people have access to food can't just be a question of providing them with enough calories. We also need to uphold the dignity of the people eating the food. And in the case of emergency food provision, such as the food pharmacy, that involves making sure that it's culturally appropriate for them. Many of the food pharmacy volunteers were people on furlough, and as they returned to work, the pharmacy closed. But the need has not gone away, and Adira's work has not stopped. We didn't just, you know, close the food pharmacy and then thought, right, well, that's it. Off we go. We are padding ourselves between now and Christmas. There is a lot of grief at the moment because of COVID that is on pause because, you know, I've had people say to me, listen, Ursula, my husband left the house or my son left the house in an ambulance and, you know, I wasn't able to go and, and say goodbye because they had COVID. So, you know, I could only speak to them on the phone through a nurse. And then the next thing I know, they're telling me that that coffin over there has my son or has my husband in there. And I'm not accepting that because I didn't go through the rites or the rituals. I didn't get to kiss him goodbye. I didn't get to hold his hand. I didn't get to comb his hair before he died. So I can't grieve. So my grief is on pause because I don't believe that my husband has died. I don't believe my son has died. So I said to, to, to my committee, look, when milestones hit, that's when people are going to be forced to accept and acknowledge that, oh dear God, my husband is dead because it's now Christmas and he's not here. That present under the tree is not going to be opened. My, my, my 10 year old is not here. So maybe that was him in that coffin. And that's when the floodgates and the dams will, will burst open. 
So we're padding ourselves in two ways. We've started a listening training for the black community where we're training black volunteers to become listeners. And then the other thing we're doing is we're giving we're going to be giving out 500 Christmas hampers. And in that hamper that we will give to a single person, a couple or a family will be everything you will see on a table on Christmas Day. So it will have a turkey. It will have stuffing. It will have Yorkshire puddings. It will have um, veg. It will have Christmas pudding, which I can't stand. It will have non-alcoholic wine in there. So everything a person would normally have on Christmas Day. For those people who lost their jobs over COVID or who lost the main breadwinner over COVID and have already started saying, Ursula, what am I going to do? I won't have money to feed my kids on Christmas Day. I've already spoken to the supermarkets and said, get ready because I'm coming. Supermarkets are supporting those in need, for example, by donating excess produce through organisations like Adira. And that support is welcome. But of course, it also raises a question. Why is that support needed in the first place? How can it be that there are people in Sheffield and across the UK who simply can't afford food? Why is it that many of those working in the food system are underpaid and overworked in the name of keeping food prices down, while supermarkets generate billions of pounds in profits each year and then make very public donations to charities supporting those in food poverty? Take a moment to think about just how dysfunctional that is. How could we instead create a system in which that kind of charity isn't necessary in the first place? Here's Ursula again. As long as there's a thing called greed, we will never get there. Um, as long as there's, you know, pharmaceutical companies and all these big organisations that, you know, control the food and control the medicine and make money off of people suffering. Because we could do that now. We could solve world hunger now. Come on, there's enough money on this planet to solve world hunger with all the billionaires that we have. Um, you know, and there's enough in terms of farming and come on, it can be done. But as long as there's greed, it's just never going to happen. As long as there's mistrust been bred, um, intentionally bred, um, in terms of the way the media portrays certain communities. And to feed that constantly into society, you create divisions and you create mistrust and you create hatred among people where people, even if there was an opportunity to work together to, to, to solve some of the world's biggest problems, we don't want to do it. And you just look at the world leaders. They can't even sit around the table together, <laughs> you know, and, and, and come up with a plan that everybody agrees on because, you know, it's just selfishness and greed and everybody at that table is just out for themselves. Greed assumes scarcity. It assumes that there isn't enough to go around. And yet, all the stories we've heard... Stories from gardens and allotments, from farms and bakeries. They've been characterised by a sense of abundance. The reality of that abundance often feels elusive. But when you're working with the land, with the soil, it becomes self-evident. And once you start to think in terms of abundance instead of scarcity, sharing rather than hoarding becomes the natural thing to do. Sociologist Dr Lisa Palmer told us about the culture of sharing that exists on allotments. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about allotment spaces is the, the kind of ethics and practice of sharing um, and sharing food and exchanging food. So I think that's, that's, it's always exciting. It's always 
interesting, but it's all also kind of gives us an insight into a different way to live and to kind of be with each other. It's not just about monetary exchange. You know, it might be exchanging a, a pumpkin for a bunch of um, spinach or chard or something, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the culture that exists on in allotment spaces. Shard End resident Astrid Giebo encountered the same sense of abundance when she was setting up her growing community. And no diggity gardens Neville Portis and Southeast England Seed Sovereignty Coordinator Helena Schultz spoke about the abundance that springs from the practices of seed saving and seed sharing. So is it possible to live in abundance? Is that the antidote to the greed that Ursula talks about? There are lots of reasons to be worried at the moment. Worried and angry and sad and just tired. But the voices we've heard throughout the series provide unequivocal, undeniable reasons to be hopeful, to be optimistic. Together, they form a defiant chorus, one that challenges the dominant logic of industrial food. The journey ahead towards a truly resilient, humane and nourishing food system a food system rooted in abundance. That journey is complex and it will be bumpy. But we hope that you take this as an invitation to embrace that complexity, to dive into it, to seek out and connect with those who feed us. After all, as we said right at the start of this series, food doesn't come from shelves. Food comes from the soil, the sea and the hands of people. We'll leave you with a few final thoughts from some of those people. Being able to share a dish from your grandma with your with with your son, being able to share that heritage and to share the process of cultivating that meal, I think is a really important like spiritual thing, like a kind of passage like to say that you've handed something over. What I would like to see in the future is that heritage and that like legacy pulled into how we operate and look at the future, but with added like an added twist of how we implement technology into those those rituals, those practices, how we implement architecture and create beautiful growing spaces. And it's it's proven it's really good for our, our mental health and our well-being. I said to my kids the other day, I used to say, whenever they say to me, what's your favourite animal? I always say a lion, because, you know, it's courage and all that kind of stuff. And just, But now I tell them I'm a beaver. They build back the rivers and they build back the, the ecosystem by doing the right actions. The beaver spirit, yeah? The regenerative action of a beaver and what he does to a river is what I want to take on and be on my farm and be for the community as well. Everything should be linking back to the soil in terms of what we put out there to people and opening up our plates to more interesting food. We've narrowed far too much and it's time to rediscover flavour and experience and engage with where our food comes from. Food is more than calories. When you taste something that's been grown with agroecological methods, that's grown in season and hasn't been flown in, I think that just wakes people up. 
people have been rediscovering their connection to land and to growing and nature and it's intensified because of COVID that people just want to connect. That moment of just, yeah, meeting more people virtually or, or in person who are running things in communities and are excited about changing things and wanting to work with more people, it can only ever get bigger and yeah, it's going to be great. just being out in the elements. And for me, that is, that's gone right to the top of, of how I choose to live going forward. And I've come back absolutely buzzing. I did what I wanted to do. I managed to plant, connect with people, touch the soil, open the elements. And yeah, I'm, I'm actually really good. So this phase of, of existence has been instrumental for me because now I'm choosing how I want to live the rest of my life. This episode of Who Feeds Us was produced by Abby Rose, Joe Barrett, and me, Katie Revel. It also included interviews and editing by Susie McCarthy and Lovejeet Daliwal. Thank you to everyone we heard from. Salma and Khalil Atan, Mawson Hassanen, Jane Scotter, Sky Gingell, Angus Buchanan-Smith, Dee Woods, Ursula Myrie, Dr. Lisa Palmer, Abigail Halsborough, Rosie Benson, Linda McFarlane, and Andre Reid. We'd like to thank all of the community collaborators who've worked with us on this series. Delia Snusi, Andre Reid, Zane Dada, Kathy St. Germans, Cole Gordon, and Fern Towers. The project manager for Who Feeds Us is Olivia Oldham. Our artwork is by Hannah Grace, and the original music for the series is by Michael O'Neill. Our Patreon supporters help make Farmerama possible. We're really grateful to them and even the smallest contribution makes a big difference. If you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Who Feeds Us is possible thanks to the Farming the Future COVID Response Fund. We're very grateful to the A-Team Foundation, the Roddick Foundation, 30 Percy, and the Samworth Foundation for providing the funds to make this project happen. Many thanks also to Farming the Future advisor Dee Woods for her guidance in bringing the team together.